Well, you know, I am a retired professor from Harvard Business School. And um, I'm born and raised in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, in the predominantly Black Inglewood community. Um, I taught at Kellogg, at the uh, Kellogg School of Management at Harvard, excuse me, at Northwestern University for 17 years. And then I moved to my alma mater, Harvard Business School, uh, where I taught for seven years. And then in 2019, I retired and I returned back to Chicago. But at Harvard Business School, I taught entrepreneurial finance. And then I taught also and created a new course called Black Business Leaders and Entrepreneurship. I went to a little small liberal arts college in Massachusetts called Williams College, where I majored in uh, Black history. So what I've done is I've combined two of my loves, and that is race and uh, finances, specifically the Black race, the Black community, and finances. And it's my thesis that the problems that we presently have in America between Blacks and whites, the root cause of that problem is the wealth gap between the two groups, where the average net worth of a white family is about $170,000 compared to the average net worth of a Black family that's a mere $17,000. And it's my belief that the reason why this disparity exists where whites have 10 times as much wealth as Black is not because whites are smarter. It's not because whites have worked harder, but it's because of public policy that was designed by our federal and state governments that was literally designed to subsidize white wealth while simultaneously impoverishing Black people. That these things were literally done for those objectives. And those three things are, Vaughn, one, slavery. That slavery was, in fact, a public policy. It was a government policy that subsidized white wealth. It was not because white people were being mean to black people. It was strictly because the desire was, how do I help white people get more wealth, while at the same time, how do I make sure black people get nothing? So slavery was 246 years, Vaughn. A lot of people don't know that it lasted that long. So 246 years, Vaughn, that means there were 18 generations where wealth was being transferred by white people, but for the most part, wealth was not being transferred for black people. And so that was one of the public policies. Then that was followed, in, and slavery went from 1619 to 1865. 246 years. I've traced back uh, some of my family, and I see that one of my Great, 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 great grandfather was born into slavery in 1818. Okay? 1818. His name was Nathaniel Grant. And he was born into slavery in Virginia. And then he was sold to, into slavery in Mississippi. The reality is, there's been no wealth that is transferred from him to my family. Okay? In contrast, my white colleagues have had that experience and the benefit of that. And then the 246 years of slavery was followed by 60 years of what's called. Black code, where the state governments, for the most part, literally said, what we're going to do is we lost all of this cheap labor, all of this uh, cheap labor. We have to find a way to keep it. So what they did, Vaughn, was in states like Louisiana, they implemented black codes where black people were arrested for the most menial things. They were arrested for, for example, walking on the wrong side of the street. They were arrested for holding hands with your wife, with your left hand instead of your right hand. They were arrested for women having your headband on, uh, leaning to the right side and to the left side. Now, that was not done to just be mean. It was done by state governments that created these 
codes to ensure that black people would remain down in the South in these places. And what would happen is they would arrest people, Vaughn, and they would arrest them and then they would fine them. And if you couldn't pay your fine, then you had to stay in jail. Another company could pay your fine, like United States Steel, they could pay your fine. And in return for paying your fine, you were indebted to them for a year of free labor. And so what you had, and that was called convict leasing. So states like Louisiana and other states, Louisiana, 92% of their annual budget one year came from leasing Black people to private enterprises, okay? But that's what happened to Black people for 60 years. And if your family, if you were um, arrested and you had children, your daughter was required to work for a white family for free for 21 years, and your son was required to work for a white family for free for 18 years. So you had 246 years, followed by 60 years of Black codes, followed by 40 years of redlining. And again, this is public policy with the federal government after the Second World War, Vaughn, the federal government led by Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, we need a middle class in America. Prior to the Second World War, the ending of the Second World War in 1940, for the most part, there was no middle class. You were poor, you were wealthy in, in America. If you wanted to buy a home, the only kind of mortgage that you could get for a home was about a three-year mortgage. So the only people who could get mortgages were wealthy people. So our federal government created what's called the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration. And the Federal Housing Administration went to banks. And they said to banks, if you give this new security called a 30-year mortgage to people, we will guarantee, the federal government will guarantee 80% of that mortgage. Therefore, you as a bank only have 20% at risk. The result of that is the country was flooded with money to buy homes. People were flooded with money to buy homes. One bank, for example, was the Bank of Italy. The Italian was created to service the Italian community. And it flooded its community uh, with these mortgages. And they were government-backed securities. But there was a caveat there, young man. And the caveat was these mortgage-backed securities, these mortgage guarantees, they are available for anybody other than Negroes. That was the language. And it wasn't language that was hidden. It wasn't language that was obfuscating or intimated. It was explicit language that was written to say, Negroes will not receive these guarantees. So here again, it's just like slavery. The government, the federal government is subsidizing white wealth, if you think about it. White people are getting the benefit of a guarantee from the government, while at the same time, the government is saying, we will impoverish Black people, but not making this available to them. So the Bank of Italy and mortgages bond are the most one of the most profitable things that banks can give. And that was then and it is today too. So the Bank of Italy was so doggone successful that the Bank of Italy bond today is the Bank of, Bank of America. Yes, the reality is Black people were denied these opportunities to create wealth. So that was 246 years plus another 100 years of things that were explicitly done to hurt Black people. But at the same time, Vaughn, they were explicitly done to help white people. It was a subsidy. It was a government subsidy, just like food stamps that was given to white people. The result is now Black people, a third of all Black people have zero net worth. The result is the average white family has a net worth of 170000 The average Black family has a net worth of 17000 Vaughn, we can never catch up because of this special thing that was done for white people. There's an old axiom. It says, and this greatly and does a great job of describing this, it says, you're better off getting a head start than you are running fast. 
We can never as a people run fast enough to catch up with whites who got that great head start. The only way we can do it is through reparations. In my book, I cite the reason why that wealth created was wealth gap was created. I just told you it was those three things. And then I give four recommendations as whites can do if they want to help, help black people. After George Floyd was murdered, many whites were well-intentioned and said, what can I do? So in response to that, I say, let me write a book that is a call to action. Let me write a book that explicitly tells white people what you can do to help the black community. And I recommend four things for white people to do. The first thing is, I said, and let me just say this, when I wrote the book, I said in mind, this book is targeting at a white audience who has a, a logical mind and a kind heart. And a logical mind was for those who were not interested in propaganda, for those who said, this is a historical fact that would agree to me, would be that slavery did last 246 years. Propagandists would tell you, no, it wasn't that long or it wasn't that bad. You know, I want somebody who is very logical and is interested in the truth, as well as somebody who has a kind heart, who says something wasn't done that was right. Many white people know this fact, as well as black people don't know it. So these are the four things I recommend. Number one, I said for white. And the reason why I'm targeting white people, because they have the money. We don't have any money. We're an impoverished people. And again, it's not because we're lazy. It's not because they're smarter. They got a head start from the government. And so the first thing is I tell white people that I want you to spend in your annual budget 9.21% of your annual budget with Black-owned business. The reason 9.21% is symbolic, Bond, Officer Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 21 seconds. 9.21% represents that. What I asked them to do is spend money with Black-owned business because what we know is from research, and the research was done by a white scholar by the name of Dr. Timothy Bates. And what his research showed in the book titled Banking on Black Enterprise, that Black-owned companies will create jobs for Black people. That what we know is that white-owned companies, even if a white-owned company isn't a Black community, will not necessarily create jobs for Black people. The statistics shows that a, black a white owned company in a Black community will have about a 30% Black employment rate, whereas a Black-owned company in a Black community will have an 85% Black employment rate. And then even if you take the study outside of the Black community, if you take it to white communities, what you'll see is a white-owned company in a white community will have a workforce that's probably 15% Black. Whereas a Black-owned company located in a white community will have a Black workforce that's about 75% Black. So what we see is, if you want to help the Black community, do business with Black-owned businesses, because they will hire Black people. And Vaughn, I walk the talk that I have put out there in the market. I walk the talk in the sense that over 50% of my annual budget is spent with Black-owned companies. Not companies that employ Black people, but companies that have Black ownership. So my dentist is a Black-owned company. My accounting firm is a Black-owned firm. My um, law firm is a Black-owned firm. Um, my, the restaurants that I go to, I'm going to a restaurant tomorrow for dinner. I go to Black-owned restaurants. And I would challenge anybody in the country to say that they've been to more Black-owned restaurants than me. If I travel, the first thing I do when I get to a new city is I Google Black-owned restaurants because I want to go to those restaurants because it's a way for me to put money 
in the Black community very easily while I'm there. But I use Black-owned companies for almost everything that I can do. And if I don't, it's simply because I can't find a Black-owned company. If you do business with a Black-owned company, you will help the Black community. Number two, I ask them to donate at least 9.21% of their annual philanthropic dollars to an HBCU, to a historically Black college and university. Vaughn, there are 101 HBCUs throughout the country with approximately 300,000 students. And these schools, as one Hannah Jones, the Pulitzer Prize winner said, she said, these schools punch above their weight class. They do what other schools don't do. Um, and I didn't go to an HBCU, but I know they're important. The average HBCU has an endowment of a mere $12 million. But these schools produce what we know statistically as 80% of all Black judges went to an HBCU. 50% of all Black engineers went to an HBCU. 50% of all Black lawyers went to an HBCU. 100% of all Black vice presidents of the country went to an HBCU. So these schools have done some work that is just phenomenal. And what we know is those schools were created simply because Blacks were denied admission to white schools. And most of those schools, Vaughn, interestingly, were actually created by white people. So Morehouse College, for example, is named after a white philanthropist, or excuse me, the secretary of a white organization. And most of those schools were created by white uh, people and white organizations, typically religious organizations. So that's one of the reasons why I applaud Mackenzie Scott, the former uh, wife of Jeff Bezos, who has given almost, I believe, almost like $500 million to HBCUs, a white woman who has done that. And so I'm imploring white people, following the roots, following the steps of your ancestors who decided to help black people by creating HBCUs. The third thing I ask people to do is to deposit meaningful dollars in black-owned banks. And the reason is because it's stupid. And what I want them to do is deposit at least 9.21% of their annual savings in a black-owned bank. But I'd like to see black white people deposit $200,000, $250,000 in Black-owned banks and leave it there for five years. Because if you think about Black-owned banks, who do they cater to? Who are their depositors and their customers? It's primarily Black folks, primarily Black folks who are poor. And so if you rely on getting money from people who are poor, you're not going to get a lot of money. And then secondly, because they have to live day and pay those expenses, they're probably going to put the money in and take it right back out. So the banks don't get the benefit of what's called the multiplier effect that white banks get. And the multiplier effect works something like this, and that is where banks create money from magic. So for example, you go to a bank, you deposit $100 into your account. What the bank will do is they'll take 90 of those dollars, they'll put 10 of those dollars in an account at what's called a loan. They will hold 10% of that, but then they'll lend out your other $90. So they'll lend out $90 to another person. So in that instance, that bank originally only had $100. Now the bank has your $100 plus they got $90 that the other person owes them now. So $190 now is in that bank or has been used by that bank. So the bank creates money from out of nowhere, but it's called the multiplier effect. Black banks don't have that benefit because the money doesn't stay. And it's not a very a lot of money. So I'm asking whites, put money in a Black-owned bank and leave it there. And don't worry about it being at risk because our federal government guarantees up to $250,000 in any bank in the United States. So there's no risk whatsoever in that instance. 
And the beauty of a Black-owned bank is what we know. We know that Black-owned banks will send money to the Black community. We know that 72% of all mortgages given by Black-owned banks go to Black people. Less than half a percent of mortgages by white banks go to Black people. Here is empirical data that shows if you do these things, you can help the Black community. And the fourth thing is, even if you did all of those things, Vaughn, we still wouldn't catch up with white people. And it's because 246 years of slavery. What a white scholar concluded was, if you stop white wealth right now, it would take Black people 228 years to catch up. Why? Because they had a head start. And what we know is, because of that great head start, we know that the average white person who is a high school dropout has a greater net worth than the average Black person who has a college degree, okay? And the reason is because a white high school dropout has likely inherited money from their family, whereas Black people didn't, okay? And so what you see from that is education is not the great equalizer. Why? Because they had a head start and they got subsidized by the federal government. Therefore, my fourth recommendation is for the readers of my book to send a letter to their congressperson stating that they support reparations, that the federal government should give reparations to Black people. And those reparations should be for the difference between white average net worth and Black average net worth. So that every Black person 18 years and over should receive a check for $153,000. That's the difference between 170 for whites and 17 for Blacks. And they should get just one check. We should not get it over 10 years or 17. No, we should get one check. And there's precedent for it. In America, after the Second World War, excuse me, when the Second World War started, there was concern that Japanese Americans would not be loyal to America, that they would be traitors. So what the federal government did was they imprisoned them. They put them in what's called internment camps. So 120,000 Japanese Americans were rounded up. They were taken from their homes and they were put on trains and everything, and they were shipped to places like Kansas, where they were interned for three years. And the federal government said, we don't trust that the Japanese Americans will be loyal. Now, be mindful. In the Second World War, we were fighting Japan, we were fighting Germany, and we were fighting Italy. But only the people of color were in prison. Uh, Italian Americans were not in prison. German Americans were not in prison but 120,000 Japanese Americans were in prison. Under the Reagan administration, they decided to give reparations to Japanese Americans, to 80,000 Japanese Americans. They gave them, the federal government, our federal government, gave them a check for $20,000 for being three years interned. So we have precedent for that. And my proposal is one that says 153,000 per uh, black person, it would cost the country, and it's affordable, $3 trillion, okay? Our annual economy for the United States is too far to pay us back for what has been done. Let me just tell you this, Vaughn. There is no other ethnic group or racial group in this country that has fought in more wars than Black people. We have fought in every single war. There's nobody more loyal than us, okay? You know, sometimes people say, well, how is it that immigrants can, can do so well when they come over and Black people can't? Well, but there was never any laws stopping immigrants from getting mortgages. There was never any law that put immigrants in jail for Black codes. 
the world that Black Americans experience is something completely different from what other people experience who have not come from here. And so the reparations, the only time that there was an effort to give us any kind of reparations was in 1865. You know, the 13th Amendment was passed in 1865, giving freedom to over 4 million Black folks. But in 1865, the war was, Civil War was winding down. And as the Civil War was winding down, General Sherman, who was the general in the United States Army, um, the Union Army, he was marching his troops through Savannah, Georgia, and he was kicking the Confederates' butt, okay? As he was marching through and he was defeating the Confederates, Black people were leaving the plantations, and they were following him and following the troops. And General Sherman, in response to seeing that, and it's estimated that as many as 10,000 Black people started following the troops as they were marching through Savannah, kicking the Confederates' butt. Black people were leaving the slave plantations before freedom. General Sherman wrote a letter to President Lincoln, and he said, I got all of these Negroes following me, and I'm quoting them. What should we do with them? President Lincoln said, ask the Negroes, what do they want? So General Sherman arrived in Savannah, Georgia, they took over a hotel that had been owned by the Confederates, a five-star hotel, and he convened a meeting with 20 Black clergymen. They were all men. Some of them was unanimous, Vaughn. All of them said, we want land. We want land so we can take care of ourselves. Because the Black people realized that they had heard the stories about when the Haitians kicked the French's butt and the Haitians got land, they were able to start uh, planting food and feeding themselves. The Haitians refused to plant sugarcane, for example. They said, we're not going to plant the crop of the oppressors because that's what Europe wanted with all of the Caribbean islands. They planted sugarcane so that they could feed Europe with sugar, okay? But the Black people said, we want land. And then the question was asked, do you want the land amongst whites or do you want it separate from whites? It was not a unanimous response. Some said, typically the youngers, we would like to integrate with whites. The older said, no, we want it separate. They said, because we can't trust whites. So after that meeting, General Sherman issued what's called Special Order Number 15. Special Order Number 15 said, we're going to take 4 million acres from the Confederates, and we're going to try those freaking Confederates for treason. Just like January 6th, those guys were jumping on the walls of the Capitol. That's what American government said then. We're going to get these guys who were fighting against the United States, we're going to try them for treason and we're going to hang some of them. And what we're going to do is we're going to take their land and we're going to give it to Black people, the new freedmen, we're going to give it to them in plots of 40 acres. We're not going to give it to them for free. We're going to sell it to them for $1.25 an acre. And then what happened? President Lincoln gets murdered. President Lincoln gets murdered. His vice president, Andrew Jackson, succeeds him. And he comes in and he says, and he's a former slave owner, he says, it is not unfair. It's not fair to white people to take this land. And he says to the Confederates, former Confederates, he said, all you need to do is apologize. Apologize and get your land back, and you're not going to be tried for anything, treason or anything. So that's exactly what happened. So the government never gave and never acted on that 40 acres that we've always heard about 40 acres and a mule. It was going to be 40 acres, and then the government had old mules that were around, they said, we're going to give people a mule as well. But, so, but that was the only time that the government made any attempt to give any kind of reparations. And, and I'll close with this. We saw something similar this thankfully happen overseas. And that is when the United Kingdom, Europe, 
when they abolished slavery and they abolished slavery about 10 years before America and they abolished slavery in the Caribbean islands. And what they did was though they said the slave owners, slavery in the Caribbean islands was brutal. It was brutal all over the world. But the average slave in the Caribbean islands only lived eight years after arriving, whereas the average slave in America lived 22 years after arriving. But it was so brutal because the Europeans wanted that sugar and they worked those damn black people from sun up, to not sun up to sun down, sun up to sun up, okay? Because their mindset was, we can just replenish them with more people. So once they abolished slavery, they said, we got to give something to these white people who were, the, who were the slave owners. So they actually, the federal government of Europe, of the United Kingdom, they took out a loan and they used the loan, the money from the loan to pay white slave owners in the Caribbean islands. And it was a loan for like 20 million pounds. And this is the most fascinating thing. That loan was just paid off in 2015. Think about what I'm telling you now. So what you hear is, you hear the people who are in the UK Black people who are in the United Kingdom, Black people in the Caribbean islands that are still governed by the English, they were paying taxes that were being used to pay off loans that were given to, that was used to pay off uh, white people who had enslaved their people. So it's been a disdainful history, but the only way that the right can be, uh, the wrong can be righted is reparations. And what I'm glad to see is I'm seeing something similar being asked for on the part of my Caribbean brothers and sisters saying, we want reparations too. And that's the only way that we can get back to equal footing. None of this, we're going to have a hand-holding party singing, we are the world. We need money and we need the money that we're entitled to. So you asked a short question, I gave you a long-winded answer. That was an amazing answer. Oh my God. Did Thank you learn you so something? Much. Oh my God. And then some. The amazing thing of it all, I don't even know where to begin. The information and knowledge that you just bestowed upon all of us is just tremendous because we can get it from one source and we know a lot of it is true because it's all, you know, it's, it's searchable, all Google, they're all factual. And the great thing is it's going to be in one space and one place. And I love that. And the letter to white people, it touches home with me because my grandfather was a former civil rights leader, Joseph Lawrence. For me, I had to speak to you and I got accepted to go to um, Hampton and Morehouse a year. I got accepted to go to schools and um, skip my senior year because I had it had AP credit. Okay. But what I found is that, like you said before, these schools are so underfunded that I would need to take out a loan that'd be like $20,000 to go to Morehouse per semester or per year versus going to Cornell. So I opted to go to Cornell. Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah, common sense, right? Right. Right. It's not that the black school was bad or something wrong. They just been financially denied capital. Exactly. And we can and they can't even accept a lot of black students that can't afford to go to those schools. A lot of my friends, we think, I mean, when I was growing up, when I was in high school back in the day, a lot of my friends were saying that they felt a lot of black colleges were for rich black kids because, you know, a lot of us don't have money for long. A lot of us don't have, you know, our parents can't sign on a loan. So, you know, again, that, you know, you, you are Let me not. correct. Let me correct that. Okay. First of all, here's the book. Okay. A letter to my white friends and colleagues, what you can do now to help the black community. And this book corrects what you just said and what your friends said. That was a myth. There was indeed black wealthy people who went to school there, but HBCUs, especially today, 
76% of the students there qualify for Pell Grants, which means they come from households that have annual incomes of $26,000 or less. So again, what we see is these schools punching above their weight class. They are, they are educating the most impoverished people, where in contrast, the schools that you and I went to, Cornell and Williams College, and other uh, predominantly white institutions, uh, it's like 15% of their student body qualifies for Pell Grants. So oftentimes, Vaughn, I'm asked by whites, why do we need black schools? Why do we need HBCUs? And my answer is, first of all, they produce, think about this. They actually, oh, less 5% of black students go to HBCUs, but 90% of black judges came from HBCUs. 90%, 50% of all black. So what it says is the schools that you and I went to actually are not producing black professionals, okay? Right. But those schools actually, they take black people. It's like 70% of the students are first generation black students. So while it's sort of true that they do cater um, and the, the black, uh, the middle-class and wealthy students will go there, most of the students there are actually from impoverished communities. That's good information to know, because like I said before, you already know there's a whole urban legend and a misnomer within our community that says otherwise, and we already know that, that that's misinformation for a myriad of reasons. So, you know, and again, like a lot of things that's, that's not in our, that's not in our, uh, our best interest is the FICA scores. Right. Those are algorithms. They're, nobody teaches us about FICA scores and having a 720 to 800 and how you can get a loan without even having an income. It's just crazy. Here you know, yeah. nobody teaches yeah. us about Dun & Bradstreet and about how you can have these you know, these social security numbers attached to your businesses, which is above and beyond an EIN number, and how you can have a separate line of credit and how that doesn't go against your um, your personal line of credit, right. you know, your debt ratio. Nobody teaches us about, you know, what is it, life insurance policy. You know, I know so many people, including my family, who have had to have just, just be, just gone through so much collateral damage that we have to put come together and put our money together with a fly from all parts around the country, go down to an area like a Detroit where my mother and father were, you know, they once lived before they passed and we had to pay for their funeral services. Right. Their, you know, right. this is expensive, but all you have but, to do is but, get a whole life policy. There's so many other things. You're right about a whole, but the, the challenge becomes this though. Okay. You always have to look and identify what the root cause is. And people don't have whole life policies because you know, you have to pay a, a premium. So okay. don't forget what I told you. A third of us have no wealth whatsoever. You know, when my mother died, my mother had zero, my mother had negative net worth, all right? I had to pay for the funeral and all of that stuff. And for those of us who have matriculated and got degrees, we're first generation of being able to financially do some of the stuff that we're doing right now. But you cannot ignore the legacy of those things that have happened to us. So to your point about the insurance, we can learn as much as we want to about that insurance, but if we don't have the means to pay those premiums, when that person dies, all it's going to be is hardy. But the story that you tell is common in our community. The reason it's common is simply because we don't have any money. That's the root cause of it. Never get seduced by the symptoms. Always try to find what caused this problem. And the ideal is Money should have been transferred from generation to generation. That didn't happen for us. Right. And there's disparities in healthcare too. We already sure. know the grocery stores within our communities, predominantly black and brown communities, like in the Bronx from where I'm at right now, on location doing reports. 
it's just like, I'm like, really? $10 for some eggs? You know what I'm saying? It's right. just crazy. It's right. just, it, you know, and the quality of meat and, and produce is just exactly. like, it's completely terrible. It's, so it's like, you're not going to be able to afford the, um, your premium for the health care, for the health insurance or life insurance because it's going to be through the roof because you have a clogged artery or you have there diabetes you go. or you there have, you, you know. So it's there just like it's so much against us. And I just wish that, I wish that people, you know, will push this book and I hope Congress and Biden and everybody's listening. And like you said, we all have to write our congressmen and our state senators and see if they can get jump on board. Because, I mean, these are standard recommendations. These are, what, to me, they're standard. It's not like you're saying, give me a Mercedes Benz with full coverage. No, we just want some reparations because we're already lacking. But what and, do you and say? And listen to this. Just imagine if that happened, what would happen to our communities, what you just said. All of a sudden now, Black people don't have to pay, and Black people can go to Whole Foods if they want to to get the best quality food if they want to. Okay, all of a sudden now, Black people can get uh, Blue Shield, Blue Cross insurance coverage. The health that is synonymous with money, you know, and that is health is synonymous with money. The more money you have, the greater chance you have of being healthy. Now, you, you can still be killed, and you can still, like, Wozniak or Steve Jobs, you know, he had all the money in the world, but he ended up dying. Sometimes the writing is on the wall and that's God's plan, okay? But if he chose to, and he just used this alternative medicine, he probably could have ended up saving it. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But, but listen, this has my, been my absolute pleasure. As I said, here's my book right here. It's a letter to my white friends and colleagues, what you can do now to help the Black community. Thank you so much, Professor. Uh, Mr. Rogers, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, oh, one quick question. What do you say to those who say, or oh, the naysayers that say, you give us the reparations, the 154K approximately, how are we going to teach us to uh, manage our money or diversify? Great question. Great question. So I would only put one condition on the qualifications for that money, that you must go to one class on personal finance. But it's only one class. I don't want Black people to be burdened with you got to go through five classes and all of these hurdles. The reason why I wanted things to be as simple as possible and be mindful, the Japanese Americans, they received the check and they weren't told that you needed to have some classes. And see, I come from the position, Vaughn, and this is what I thought you were going to ask. And some people say, well, aren't people going to waste their money? This is my position. So what? We have the right to uh, mess over money, just like the person who plays the lottery and wins. They don't make a requirement that they have to go to a class or anything like that. But more importantly, Give me what I am entitled to and let me do what I want to do with my money. Will some people do some stupid things? Absolutely. Will people give money right back to white people? Absolutely. So what? As long as you got what you were entitled to, what happens after that, we, we're even as far as I'm concerned to some degree. But there would be one class that you would be required to for personal finance. Okay. okay. Points well taken. Thank you so much, Mr. Rogers. Have a wonderful weekend, and thanks for taking all the time in your busy schedule. It's my pleasure. Thank you for reaching out to me. I appreciate you. Bye-bye.